Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Faye, Sue Grimmett and Peter Cat are with me via Zoom. As always, good to be with you both. Thanks, Dom. And uh, we, uh, we've got an international again today on the On The Way podcast. We're going to Edinburgh to talk to an American, which does make sense. Uh, Trip Fuller <laughs> joins us. He's an American theologian, writer, academic, and perhaps most uh, notably podcaster, since 2008, he has been hosting Homebrewed Christianity, one of the pioneering podcasts that have paved the way for people like us to do, I guess, what, what we do here alongside many hundreds of others around the world. He is currently based at the University of Edinburgh, where he is a postdoctoral research fellow in theology and science. And his new book is Divine Self-Investment, an open and relational constructive Christology. Trip, thank you very much for, for joining On The Way. Oh, excited to do it. Yeah, look, it's it's a real treat. I know um, my first meeting with Sue was about uh, for three, four years ago now. And I think one of the very first, maybe the very first conversation I had with Sue, she was talking about Trip Fuller and homebrewed Christianity. So you've been an influential part. You, you have no idea who we are. You've just got a media request come through the internet. But you've been an influential part in the journey of this uh, this podcast here in Brisbane. Oh, always exciting to be a part of, uh, you know, giving, at least inspiring people to put expressions of the faith out there that aren't uh, depressing, backwards, angry, and judgmental. <laughs> That's I mean. the aim. That's the aim, isn't it? Well, look, uh, we, we're going to have a conversation today that it, it, it's probably fair to say it's likely to be a bit uh, heavier theology than we sometimes go on the podcast. Stick with us, though, because Trip Sue does did describe you earlier to me. Uh, your gift is the church. You make heavy theology sexy, was what Sue said. So, oh wow, <laughs> that uh, that's what you can prepare yourself for on the podcast today. Um, look, even as I read the book title out, I realise that to people who haven't done any theological study, who are just interested in exploring the wisdom tradition and and finding, I guess, their their way throughout this, that hearing words like an open and relational constructive Christology. It might sound a bit like a, you know, a different language uh, to an extent, and and that's what my role is going to be here today. I, we talk about putting it in layman's terms. I'm happy to play the role of the layman today. Um, that that hopefully I can ask the questions that others might be wondering. Um, so I just I want to ask you to start with because there's a few terms we're going to use. Things like Christology, um, things things like process theology that that are going to be important to define. Just mm -hmm. to begin with, for for anyone who hasn't spent any time doing formal theological study. You um you say the book is an open and relational constructive Christology. How would you translate that to them? Okay, so within the academy, um, we had a uh, um, a, a group of uh, you know like different groups together, and like they have different research interests and such like that. Well, um, open and relational theology group it is a group that brings together theologians that have a shared set of uh, set of commitments as opposed to everyone's in some the reform tradition or they're jesuit theologians or they all like the same philosopher open relational the theologians are ones that uh advocate or argue for um the movement of history to be open right like that the future is possibilities not determined and known completely by god um god knows all that can be known right the past completely the present as becoming and the future as possibilities but it's it's not known as if history is a book and the relational part means uh, that God is, is impacted by the world and the world is impacted by God. 
that the relationality that you see in scripture that most people experience in their religious experience and these things are not, um, you know, uh, that it goes both ways, that God is invested in the the world and, and vice versa. And that relationality is central to the heart of God. Um, and that usually that means that love then, or the love of God, isn't just a part of who God is, but it's the essence of God. And so like, say the mystery of God, people like Martin Luther said, well, in the mystery of God, there might be this dark side for open relational theologians. The mystery of God is the infinity of God's love. All that we can't grasp and know, we can still trust its relational character as loving. And, and Christology, define Christology for us. Okay, so there, there's kind of seven big questions Christians have asked forever. And then they, what the answer sounds like depends on your context, your dialogue partners, all that kind of stuff. And Christology is broken up into two of those seven questions. One is the person of Jesus, which is how the divinity and humanity are related to Jesus. Um, and then the work of Jesus or salvation, which is what God did in Christ. Uh, and so Christology is the investigation of those two questions. And then the book is a constructive way of thinking through those questions using uh, an open and relational context. And I suppose that, I mean, there's one question you ask in, in the book um, that kind of frames this, this conversation we're hoping to have from the outset. It is a foundational question. I guess in, in some sense it is the foundational question um, for anyone who, who, you know, does confess to the Christian faith, which is what did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Um, you, you mentioned in the book uh, a room full of liberal theologians who couldn't quite come up with a, an answer to that question. What did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Why do you think this is such a difficult question? Because I, I mean, if, if you subscribe to the you know, mm-hmm. penal substitution and atonement sort of doctrines that a price had to be paid and whatever else, those sorts of ideas, they could, they could come up with quite a clear cut answer about what did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves. If you don't hold to those views, why do you think that question is one that it's so hard to find an answer to? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, one thing quickly just about the penal substitutionary answer is you know, it's relatively new in church history. It's not the oldest atonement theories. Um, and and you, when you look at the history of the church, one thing that pops in your head is that whatever everyone assumed was just normal for Christianity and whatever church you were born into just isn't. There's lots of weird answers that if you were born in the right part of the world at the right time, you're going to have you, there, one of the earliest atonement theories was that Jesus was kind of like fish bait hooking Satan into killing him so that God could take out the rival cosmic power, right? Like (laughs) if you said that, like, you're like, whoa, that's weird. Uh, Yeah, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, You're like born at the wrong time, wrong place, right? So uh, in the creeds themselves, uh, the creed, if you think of it, it just says it worked, right? Like it's real detailed about specific things. You got Jesus's mom. You got who took Jesus out, Pilate. Yeah, it's crucified sometimes, descended into hell. But then it says, for the forgiveness of sin. It doesn't tell you how it worked. And I think that is really, really important. So for me in the book, it is uh, is like, let us go back to the scriptures. Let us listen to more voices that haven't been listened to, their experience of salvation. And then let's, let us try to give the most beautiful and compelling account of why it worked. Why, as Christians, our experience of God is mediated by Jesus. And I think that 
the penal substitutionary atonement are the dominant ones, especially for those of us that come out of more evangelical context. Um, they don't have an image of God where God's as nice as Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. And I feel like, I, I mean, I'm postmodern enough not to like absolutes, but as a Christian theologian, I feel like God should at least be as nice as Jesus. <laughs> so if in your head, yeah, you say to yourself, um, you know, I've been looking at these Bible passages. I got some philosophy questions. Uh, yep, God is eternal, so God chose to create the world. And because God's holy and loving, probably needed some to experience wrath and some to get in. Now, considering how crappy everybody is, somebody's <laughs> going to have to catch the wrath for the people I want to save. Well, conveniently, I have an eternal son. You know, like <laughs> the... Like once you start to like say those things out loud, mm. the picture of God is not one that Jesus called Abba. Jesus told us, pray for your enemies. And then like you, you kind of want to find a footnote because my dad can't. He's a, <laughs> he's a steam pot, you know? Uh, so like in uh, chapter five, when I spent quite a bit of time talking about it, at the beginning, I say, I think, that whatever way we see the cross and um, the power of the resurrection should not be one where the character of God diverges from that revealed in Jesus. But that's just called conservative Christianity. You know, in a sense, like you're saying, uh, God revealed God's self in Jesus. So when I start using my imagination to figure out how we want to talk about this, yeah. one keystone is God should be as nice as Jesus. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. I once heard someone say that they wish they could be more generous towards marginal people, but God wouldn't let them. So they were they were saying that they were more compassionate than God. So it's sort of the same same argument. Is that, you know, that somehow God God is the bogeyman, and um, we, we would we would really like to be nice to people, but God won't let us. And, uh, Peter, I, I, I hear that. I had a friend, uh, a very, very Calvinist friend in uh, undergrad, get so angry at me one time. Um, and he said, look, I would act like Jesus, but sound doctrine is in the way. It's a bit of a good cop, bad cop routine that God and Jesus are doing with each other. And that parenting piece too. I've heard you talk about, you know, how do we end up? We we can end up on that on that kind of story. We end up being better parents than God is, you know. We we are ending up saying if if hey we can forgive without demanding some kind of blood sacrifice, you know, we don't need to see this punishment. And there's no way that we would give up our child. That that actually makes us in the way of in all of that kind of horrific language. It makes us better parents than God as well. And and I think the you know part of that a funny way I I like to put it is like would you let your deity babysit right like um, and it, like if you think of most depictions of divine omnipotence and divine action like God's power uh, yeah. it, people go well if God's perfect then obviously God can do whatever God wants to do whenever God wants to do it it le it leads to some really uh, disastrous side effects if you're wanting the phrase God is love to be universally applicable to God uh, in, in God's fullness. It, 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 like things like, um, well, uh, 
when you know when you get to the when bad things happen to good people you have to say things like well i know it looks this way but when you get enough perspective that was really good um or you, you get weird things at tragic funerals and as a minister i remember hearing people because they're wanting to say there's meaning and purpose in the suffering but if there's meaning and purpose in the suffering and god is in control then you have to find god's intention revealed in history and that that makes things problematic and if you have a robust vision of omnipotence, then at some point you go, I, how many of your kids are you going to let walk in front of a car? You know, it, or how many times are you going to let the, the, uh, uh, the, the science denying members of a family give COVID to their grandparents? Because I've had friends who've lost parents in this whole tragedy uh, because they were, you know, bought into an anti-science ideology and a type of hubris and then passed it along. Like the, it, if, uh, it, and if you have the robust picture of divine omnipotence, it's not just God's permitting it and set by, which is already bad enough if you think of a babysitter. Like I expect the babysitter to might lose an arm and to keep my kid from being ran over. But yeah. to just sit there and go, hmm, well, that's not good. <laughs> and then that's bad. But sometimes people are like, no, everything is determined and will by God. That's like God throwing my kid under the bus. Yeah, exactly. That's why like the babysitter image, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's like, how do you talk about something that is really difficult to talk about in a funny way? Would you let your God babysit? Yeah. And I think if you take divine self-investment, that picture of who God is, it's saying that God has refused to be God without us. And that means that God not only shares our deepest joys but goes through our most painful uh sufferings with us because god couldn't do otherwise god is abba as jesus describes and mm. and so the the parental imagery in jesus is really robust uh, in the book well i think it's this book or the first jesus but i have two books on jesus so one <laughs> of them i i talk about how in in the hebrew scriptures there are three big uh, kind of collections of images for God. You know, some of them are uh, royal, like kingly, right? Others are judicial or law-giving uh, imagery, and others are parental and familial images. Uh, and I think that as Christians, um, that, you know, if Jesus is your rabbi, then you are going to trust him in a way where he goes, yeah, you want to know who the king is? Uh, Abba. And if Abba is king, then you're, you're heirs to the divine. Um, and if Abba is judge, you're not going into some courtroom where you're on trial for execution. You're going into a courtroom to discover that the, the ground of all being and possibility is adopting you into the divine family. Hmm. And so like the prioritization of Abba uh, imagery is... Uh, really, I think, really important and shifts that picture of reality. And I know y'all talk a lot about nonviolence and non-dualism. I think the context for that emerging in the early uh, Jesus community and how it takes shape in the mystical traditions of the church are people that realize, like, uh, you know, that which all things participate in and nothing particularizes is most expressed in this deep, full, trust-giving parental love. Uh, and anyway, sorry, I, I get going and I just keep talking. 
No, it's brilliant. You can keep talking for the next few hours. We'll, uh, we'll do an extended edition of the On The Way podcast. Um, I, I suppose this is there's an interesting connection here between uh, process theology and, uh, you know, and, and what we're talking with Christology here. Uh, we were talking before you jumped into this Zoom chat, just before I press record, actually, Peter, Sue and I were having a conversation um, about process theology. And, and I suppose, Peter, I think you said that you're actually, that is most of the time when you're talking, what you're talking about is process theology. But if you said the words process theology to the people at the cathedral, no one would ever know that, that, that what that term means. So maybe I'll ask, I'll throw this one to you, Peter. Can you give a bit of context when you're talking about process theology? What is, what is your context there? Well, what I'm, what I'm meaning is um, that God is discovering life along with us. Um, for me, for me, it's the only way love can be expressed. You know, love. Um, so, so often I find that the idea of love is sort of, um, I'm an abusive lover. I love you, but if you don't do what I want, I'm going to smack you with the baseball bat I've got hidden behind my back. Whereas process theology is a, is, is, um, a God who is engaged with becoming and is, is, is learning something new. So at the moment, you know, as the COVID crisis uh, unfolds, God is waiting to see what we're going to do and working with us, um, uh, enabling, en enabling wisdom and, and loving responses from people um, and doesn't have a plan as if, you know, as if you could skip ahead a few chapters and God would know how this is going to play out. And same with climate change. I mean, God, God mm. is, God is uh, working alongside us and is really interested to know whether we're going to save the planet or not. Mm. Uh, it's not, you know, and if we don't engage with process theology, we end up with a sort of ridiculous sort of fatalism that means, oh, well, you know, God's in, you know, it's that argument of God's in control. God knows what's going to happen. So we'll just wait to see how it plays out. And won't it be a pity if God's plan for all the koalas to die? Um, you know, the koalas are only going to be all dead if we actually abuse the planet, which is a gift. Mm. And so process theology is, you know, God is becoming just as we're becoming and we're becoming together Um you know, my, my background as an evolutionary scientist means I see everything in evolutionary principle, um, which is, yeah. So it's all, it's all about coming and it's exciting mm. and there's options and, and love is all about having options and making choices rather than being constrained. And so for me, if it, God is love, then we have to have process theology. It's an it's inevitable consequence of, Believing in love as a as the divine principle. Mm. So I, I know that a process theology, um, you know, it is a rejection of the the omni words in a sense. Uh, you know, yeah. this sense that something is always unfolding and and um, not set in course in its its particular way. It is interesting though, Trip. You you talk about that that question. What did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? And and, you know, why the liberal theologians, those who are living into process theology, haven't been able to, to find an answer to that question. I know, Sue, we were, we were actually, uh, last podcast, we went on a road trip up to Toowoomba to do the Season of Creation podcast. We were talking on the drive there. And, and Sue, you said the phrase, a really robust Christology 
is what we need. It's, it feels like what we need at the moment. It feels like, you know, maybe what we're, we're missing. Why do you think it is missing, Sue? Oh, I think sometimes uh, amongst we have the liberal theologians, we tend to um, get a, a little bit um, kind of, we, we, we're not clear in where the heart of things is. We can sort of talk a lot about God and talk a lot about, um, you know, the wonderful stuff we were saying about possibilities and emergence. Um, and sometimes we, we've taken for granted, I think, that we all know that this is centered in Christ and God revealed in Christ, but we don't often don't always put the language on that. And I think in, in finding a Christology that actually sits at home, that's not tied into penal substitution atonement um, as a package, as something that is just sort of some weird formula for our salvation, um, but it actually a Christology that, that sits in this emergence, I don't think has been articulated too much lately. Mm. And probably for those who've listened to the podcast we do for a little while, you know, and engaged in, in maybe a, without knowing the label in process theology, they would probably know that largely what we've spoken about is the subjective experience of your own life and your story and, and some sort of experiential thing, some sort of, it's almost the, the feeling of the grace and the love and that sense that actually something bigger is going on here. And it seems, I suppose in my own thinking, someone who's come from a more conservative background, I have always identified the people who have the clear answers or the scaffolding of the intellect um, in terms of what Jesus was and why Jesus died and all these sorts of things as being the fundamentalist side of things, needing the answers. But actually, there is an element, I suppose, when you, you come to this where, um, you know, well, do, you, do you think, I suppose you, you've written the book, so you probably do think it's something of a problem trip, but not having an answer to that question, what did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Not having an answer, what, why is that a problem? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, the reason there's a problem, there's two parts to it, and they actually come from really important issues, right? Like the, the our kind of current cultural moment, there are so many elements of it that are different than the majority of church history that to just appropriate the the language and in some sense the uh authority and and confidence of previous times is really difficult so one example is i think in the book i talk about five different elements of postmodern consciousness that challenge uh kind of a straightforward reappropriation of uh, past conclusions, um, pluralist consciousness, right? So everybody has friends in other religious traditions and non-religious traditions that uh, are better humans than them. <laughs> and if you have listening ears, you know, if I say this to my kid, then you learn from them. But the other day I was talking to my 12 year old son and he was explaining to me, um, talking to one of his Muslim friends at school, learning about their ritual prayers and asking Hey, do you think during uh, Lent this year we can do a type of praying at the same time? So you, because he talked about his friend telling him, it's cool to know my family, no matter where they are in the city, are all praying at the same time together, right? And he's like, we should try something like that. Uh, he is in a world where he just doesn't ask the same questions I did when I was little, living in rural North Carolina, and our religious diversity was the kind of Baptist you were. <laughs> right like like it wasn't even like i met an episcopalian once and wanted to know what religion they were in right so <laughs> yeah. it, it, um it, it's just a very different one then you think of cosmological consciousness 
um, you know, Peter's an evolutionary scientist. Think of how much our cosmos has changed in the last 200 years. Now, reality is it hasn't changed as it actually is, but our understanding of it is. And now, like if we threw a dart against a wall, that one little dot in the whole globe is our planet in our cosmos. And then as Christians, our texts say things like, yeah, this homeless first century Jew is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, second person of the Trinity, obviously. You know, <laughs> no, that doesn't mean that what was getting itself done in those confessions and in the Christian community can't be understood, articulated. We can't find ways of, of uh, affirming it in new ways. To say it aware that we're a planet in the Milky Way, it's just really different. Uh, and there's historical consciousness, sociological consciousness, and then false consciousness that um, you know we don't even know. Uh, we don't even know why we believe what we believe, mm. right? Like, what if Freud, Marx, Nietzsche are right in different ways? What, like, we can imagine that all of us are on this podcast because. Um, we have mom issues and we don't want to <laughs> embarrass her because we left the faith behind, but we also were super nerdy and want to be respected by our intellectual peers. So we put all this effort, right? And that might be true and we wouldn't know it. So like, today when we talk about Christology, it, there's so many just elements that have changed that it's a different type of constructive task. Yeah, well, and I know reading you, the, the book you've written, there's a few things you say along these lines of, you know, for example, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus and Christology is the disciple's discipline, the inability to articulate just how God was present in Christ and how that reality shapes the character of our life together destroys the very integrity of the church. And also we are at a moment in history in which the Christian community is struggling anew to articulate the ongoing encounter with the God that Jesus mediates. So I, su I suppose when we think about all the things that we've discussed, you know, uh, and I know, Sue and Peter, when you think about the conversations you're always having and the work that you always do, it, it does feel like the answer is lurking nearby, but no one's maybe really able to articulate it. So Trip, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the, the very question that you said no liberal theologian give an answer to. And I know you've written a book about this and it might be hard to put it in one succinct answer. But for, from the work you've done, from the research you have mm -hmm. that, that flows out of process theology, what is it that God did in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? Okay, so I would think three different things. One, um, in I, I look at the image of the Spirit in Scripture and the way it shaped the history of Israel and the life of Jesus. Um, and, you know, one, uh, when you look at that, uh, a lot of times in order to affirm the beauty of Jesus's fidelity to God in his life, uh, we would say, oh, he's sinless, right? And then it makes him so different than us. Uh, but he needed to be sinless because he has to get sacrificed, this type of thing. Um, I, I want to affirm the unique and powerful fidelity is seen in scripture of the life of Jesus. So much that all of us Christians, we don't even talk about God without talking about Jesus, right? Like we tell the story of Jesus and that is how we start to explain who God is. So in the scriptures, uh, the image of the spirit isn't something that was just Jesus's property. It's there throughout all creation. It's there through the history of Israel, inspiring the prophets, calling Sarah and Abraham out. And so in that chapter, I uh, look at how 
Um, Jesus is the fruit of God's ongoing investment in the covenanted people and in the particular lives of those inspired. And so Jesus, through his full faithfulness to God, not his sinlessness, but that he responds moment to moment, embodying or giving material reality to God's desire, dream, and possibilities for the world, his faithfulness um, makes him the image of the invisible God. God calls us, but Jesus's faithfulness means that if we want to know who God's like, we tell this story. And um, that is something I haven't done. That is something a lot of other people haven't done. And it's so much so that uh, in scripture, you get the image of, um, you see it in uh, the garden, right? Not my will, but thine be done. In Paul, you see that the church is coming to share in the will of Jesus, this mind of Christ. Let the same mind be in you that's in Christ Jesus, or we are baptized into Christ. So one of the things as a Christian that I believe uh, God did in Christ we couldn't do for ourselves is give us the gift of Christ consciousness, the possibilities of living into a deeper faithfulness, one that doesn't just uh, receive the possibilities from God as a person, but as a community. And as a community is sustained in grace and love and calls us to participate more deeply in the mission of God. And then in the Logos chapter, um, I, I do something similar using the image of the primordial Logos. Now, the last chapter, uh, which is something different, uh, looking at the cross and the resurrection, um, the, there are two different elements of it. One, I use the story of Scrooge um, in A Christmas Carol to talk about the cross, not as some necessary uh, means of accomplishing a transaction, but as a transferable nightmare. Like if you know the story of Scrooge and uh, A Christmas Carol, he's a, a, a rich, rather judgmental jerk, very selfish, turned inward on himself, and, and he has a dream. And in the dream, he's visited by three different ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And in the past, he has to look honestly at all the death and violence his selfishness and greed has brought. Then the ghost of Christmas present says, this is exactly what you're in the middle of doing right now. And the ghost of Christmas future goes, if you stay this inward, this selfish, this greedy, this is the world you're creating and leaving for everyone else. And the story ends with him falling into his own grave. And then what happens? He can rise to new life. Now, I use that story as a way of saying this is what the cross should be for us. It should be a transferable nightmare. It's not the cross as means of showing us what God's holiness demands. It is a, it is a means of mirroring the violence of our resistance to God's holy love. And it's a transferable nightmare. It should make us take account of our past. Right now in America, we're doing so around the legacy of white supremacy. In, um, the, in the uh, Black Lives Matter movement spread across the globe. And then I showed up at a rally here in Edinburgh where they're thinking about British imperialism and then what that means. Uh, so there are all these different ways. But the cross becomes a transferable nightmare. But it also is a promise that if you get shook straight, in a sense, right, that you judgment received in the context of love and the promise of transformation allows you to be honest about reality. And I think um, the cross does that. The other, um, the other part of it explored in the text is then what the cross says about God. And what does it mean that the cross of Jesus is something that happens in the heart of God? 
Uh, it means that God has a deep solidarity with all people in crosses, real and metaphorical. And it means that the salvation God dreams and desires for is not something that can happen in an exchange. It happens through the reconciliation of victim and violator alike. And I think for uh, Christianity, one of the biggest gifts, thinking more in an open relational context and looking at the diversity of people's experience and what salvation would mean, is that we don't need to shove everyone's needs into this one story of the sinner who needs to be forgiven. A lot of people's need for salvation is because they bear shame or violence or harm. And when you tell a victim that yeah. God's salvation is sounds the same for you as it does to the one that violated you, you yeah. miss a point. And you're now stuck there as someone, like, for example, as a minister, I remember um, feeling unable to say anything to a student that talked about being a victim of sexual violence because I knew how to tell someone, Oh, your sins are forgiven. But now what do I do? Mm. You, and so there in scripture and in, in an open relational vision, the cross is revealing that God too is the victim and it, that it's not just the victim and that God has solidarity in it. It's that moment to moment God's desire is to break the cycle of victim and violator mm -hmm. and bring about a type of transformation that actually requires us to cooperate with it. It's not a, a type of intervening, coercive, setting things to right all alone. Uh, the cross is a symbol of God's undying commitment to the transformation of our order. And that is something we cannot do alone, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so when you talk about what did God do in Christ, God not only made that clear, God has promised to have deep solidarity with all the victims. God has given us the cross to give us the nightmares of transformation. And um, God has said, I've refused to be uh, God without you. And I, I feel mm -hmm. like that's a deep picture of hope. Um, and so much of that comes back in uh, theologically when we don't let those really, really important questions right around pluralism or different science things or the nature of history and stuff keep us from wrestling deeply with the lived encounter with the living and life-giving God. Uh, because I, you know, I, I don't get to the book and go, well, now that I've explained this, congratulations. I hope you all enjoy it. <laughs> um, you know, In the book, I'm trying to articulate in an open-handed way, not like a closed fist way. Um, language and images to describe the experience of God mediated by Christ that I've had, those that I've served as minister, those that I've met online through the podcast. And so th that whole constructive proposal engaging a lot of other theologians is, is to say, um, you mentioned earlier that I call it a disciple's discipline. Uh, you never know as a theologian when you've when you've lapsed into just doxology, like just praise, because you take everything you're doing real seriously. Um, but at some point, your constructive proposal get is bound to be off and wrong. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The parents don't get mad when they get a mug that says "greatest dad in the world." Mm -hmm. Like, and I don't like break all my friends that have the same mug. <laughs> I don't like go to them like, whoa, uh, Cora gave me greatest dad mug. 
I would like to modify yours. You're second. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and so because Christology is not something like existence of God, right? Or something like that that you, you can debate and engage from different areas. It's talking about is the, is the possible source of all existence revealed in a homeless first century Jew. That's crazy. And then take someone who's already given themselves to this way of being in the world to reflect on it. Um, and so the proposal is trying to get is trying to uh, give this big picture and vision, but also do so in a way like, yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know, but I don't want not knowing to be why I don't describe it in the most mm. compelling, beautiful way I can do. I, I think that has uh, that's all brilliant. I, I think that has real ramifications for why we see why church doesn't live up to expectations and why you you know people would expect to see transformation in churches but we don't see it so often um and i, I think it's because while we're sitting with that transaction that phrase you use of god needs us to be god you know we are actually meant to be revealing god and it, putting on the mind of christ it's a whole different paradigm to when you're thinking this is some personal transaction for my sin that I'm going in to deal with. And like you say, the biggest issues of all around shame, the stuff that you certainly deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in um, communities, um, it has nothing to say to that at all. Um, and, it, and it won't, you know, it just won't transform communities. And we, I think we have lost um, a sense of expectation of what God actually is doing through people. You know that that at how incredible that transformation can be if we can get off that fixation with personal sin, and and how how um whatever atonement theory works to make that happen. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm reminded of I went to a Coldplay concert years ago with a friend who was at a going to a Pentecostal church at the time, and they said afterwards they in a very Pentecostal way they said I had this image come to me there of imagining the whole world together at a massive concert for God and waiting for God to appear on the stage and how amazing that would be. And the way he articulated God in that, that image as this totally separate thing to all of the humans there, this superstar status thing that would arrive when we'd waited long enough and we'd all cheer and be excited, but we'd only be graced with that presence for three hours and then off it goes again. And maybe you're able to get a selfie when God's walking down the street, if you're lucky enough. It's so drastically different to this kind of gritty um, you know, that the, the God refusing to be God without us thing that you said, um, it, it's a totally different, I suppose it's the relational theology you're talking about, but it's a totally different way of looking at the Jesus story that Jesus isn't, you know, yes, God did things in Christ that, that we couldn't have done without it, but, but that Jesus isn't the superstar who's doing the stadium tour, who we might catch a glimpse of, but instead is, what would you say the way, the, the way into the Christ consciousness well, I mean, in a sense, we have been deflating all the things that Jesus said was possible for his disciples, right? So he says uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, he uh, begins his ministry saying like, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me, you know, that whole thing. And then a few chapters later, he sends out the 12 in pairs and anoints them to go do all the same things. And then a little bit later, he gets 70 of them together and anoints them to go do all the same thing. At the beginning of Acts, he's like, wait, and the Spirit comes, and then guess what? Do all the same things. In the Gospel of John, he's like, uh, if you abide in me and I in you, then like you're going to be connected to the Father like me. And then what? You'll do greater things than me. He just says it. 
right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like there is this, um, uh, sometimes people, people distance the possibilities that God has for a community of faithful responders um, uh, from Jesus because we're, maybe we don't want to be faithful or we don't want to imagine it. Other times it's because we really don't see those possibilities in ourselves. And, you know, thinking of those who are like, yeah, but what about forgiveness and all this type of stuff? Um, the As a minister, I found like sometimes you need to say things like that because the, what has been internalized in people is that the most true thing about them is there's something wrong with them. Hmm. And now it's a lie, right? As a, as a minister of the gospel, I, and now you may think I'm completely wrong, right, if you're listening to this, but I would the, the most true thing about you is that you're God's beloved. The parts of you you like about yourself and the parts you don't. And that radical deep affirmation is something that was given to you by the good God of all creation, and it's above your pay grade to get rid of it. If your mom and dad told you you weren't good enough, they were lying. If your boss or your teacher <laughs> assesses you as deficient, they're lying. If you look in the mirror and judge yourself, you're lying to yourself <laughs> because the one who made you and knows you completely loves you completely. Yeah. And if the only way to break through that is uh, to, to, to occupy their linguistic system and give them forgiveness, then do it. But like you saw, G Jesus tells a story of the prodigal son, right? Like the prodigal son thinks I have to apologize and maybe I'll be get to be a servant. And he's practicing it because mm. the story he's told himself, the prodigal son, is he his future is not one as the child of the father. And the father's running up. He's trying to get out of his mouth his scripted apology that might get him a job. And his dad's like, shut up, put a ring on, put, put your shoes on, put a robe on. You are back. And he's like, it's kind of creepy that you were just sitting here. And he's like, no, 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 you don't know. You get it. You thought you weren't my kid anymore. You were always mine, right? Mm -hmm. the, the most true thing about him, the dad never quit being a dad. And mm -hmm. then he goes to the older brother who's like complaining and says, well, I didn't even get a chicken with my friends, you know? <laughs> and, and he goes, look, everything I have has always been yours. Mm -hmm. In both of those stories, both kids, the truest thing about them is they're loved and known completely by the father. And the blessings of that father have always been theirs. And then the one that's been stuck in the house with him refused to receive it. And the one that thought he had messed up and he wasn't worth it is now having to figure out what to do with it. But in the end, it ends in a party. And I feel like that type of affirmation um, is something that humans resist in so many different ways. Yeah. And so as, when we do Christology, it's a nerdy way of giving us language and images to then articulate this deep reality that Christians confess. Um, and, and I think that uh, the joy of being a Christian is that you can, uh, you get to be a community that tells people the truth. Uh, there'll be people that have experienced judgment and shame from other religious communities. And it could have been from the very voice of their minister. And you get to tell them your minister's lying. Mm -hmm. That's just not the good news. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. As it, you can see lockdown is inhibited by frequency of preaching. And <laughs> it's liberating stuff. Um, often in the ministry of reconciliation, um, hearing confessions, 
I, I basically have to say back to the person, well, actually, well, that's not a sin. That's not a sin. That wasn't your problem. Um, oh, that one. Yeah, that time you nicked the chocolate bar. Yeah, that probably is a sin. Um, but, you know, of all the stuff you've told me in the last hour, we're down to two sort of minor discretion, indiscretions, <laughs> and all the rest of it is stuff that other people have done to you or yep. have sold to you as your problem. So mm. what we're going to deal with now is, yep, I'm, I'm going on God's behalf to forgive you for the chocolate bar, um, but the rest of it is... Um, not yours to not yours to own, and you mm -hmm. know part of the process then is how you're going to give it back to the people, or or how you're going to forgive them so that you can move on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, and often people come out of that process feeling incredibly light, in a way that you'd expect if they'd had um, a murder forgiven them, but just the fact that they've been told well, that wasn't yours to carry anyway. And mm -hmm. the, you know, the deliberation of discovering that God is not into punishing you for something someone else has done to you. And mm -hmm. I really appreciated your comment about um, not telling people they're a sinner. Um, when Sue was working with with me here we actually decided that at easter time we would not use the confession at all for the whole season because people were saying well some of the people who thought that they were dreadful sinners because that's the doctrine they'd been imbibing since with along with their mother's milk um needed not to hear that every week because it wasn't it isn't the main message and as you say, you, you know, telling someone feeling like they're a sinner because they've been raped, there's something really wrong if that's the, if that's the message they buy. Mm -hmm. So we, we actually stripped the liturgy of the confession for a whole season of the church. So all people here for that season is about resurrection. Mm -hmm. And you don't, have to, you don't have to confess to get resurrection because for some people resurrection is simply being the gift of your love for who you are, get used to it. There's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a great point, Peter. And I think, you know, when you, you're talking there, Trip, about, um, about the, the people who have lied to you, the lies we tell ourselves, you mentioned, if you look in the mirror, you mean to yourself that the that's you yeah. lying to yourself or, or people have lied to you. And you actually draw in the book, you, you talk, you use a few examples of Jesus disciples and you say the content of the confession was a work in progress for the disciples themselves. This idea that the people who are even living alongside Jesus, there's a whole bunch of examples you could draw upon where they were lying to themselves or to each other. Um, where they were missing, they were missing the point, and the 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 guy we're talking about was meters next to them, you know, and 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 they mm -hmm. were still missing the point. D is it just one of those fundamental? I suppose it is one of those fundamental natures of being human, is that um, the distance is always put on by us. Yeah, I mean, I I I emphasize that predicament the disciples are in for two reasons. One is um, the gospels. Are the like the disciples get Jesus right in the sense if you ask the correct label, right? Very early on, when Jesus asked Peter um, and the disciples, like, who do they say I am? Now they give a whole list of answers, like maybe John the Baptist's head got reattached, 
Elijah came back. And today you could ask historical Jesus scholars. And like if it's a cross and you'd, he'd be like, oh, wandering cynic sage that practiced open commensiality that problematized holiness boundaries. And then like <laughs> N.T. writes like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus uh, is, is internalized the vocation of Israel and Dom's not apocalyptic enough, and that's his problem. But I don't want to assert a straight type of Essene apocalypticism because of this bit in Second Enoch. Like, and he gives his answer, right? And so the 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 person Jesus could have been interpreted and engaged in a whole host of ways, and they list them off. And then Jesus says, "Who do you say I am?" And Peter says, "You're the Christ, Son of the Living God." And uh, and and so the, the response to Jesus, though, is what's fascinating to me. He doesn't go, well, thank you. <laughs> the evidence demanded that burden. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that you recognize that Isaiah 53 is about me. <laughs> and if you ever meet anyone that doesn't believe in me, quote Bible verses at them. Yeah. Because uh, I need you to know that it just basic reason necessitates you to identify me as the Lord, right? Like that's not what Jesus said. He said, my heavenly father revealed that to you. So like in that passage, Jesus is not saying that my identity as the Christ is something that is demanded by the evidence, right? It's immoral to, uh, at least from my perspective, to pull that Jesus is liar, lunatic, or Lord card because Jesus, uh, they get Jesus right and he doesn't go, obviously, he goes, my father told you. And then the next story, he's like, all right, so things are going to get funky. We have some conflict coming in Jerusalem, uh, and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, Jesus, uh, have you thought about getting some new, a new brand manager, <laughs> one that's less hostile to domineering religion and politics convulsing? I don't think you know this, but you will probably die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Like the father told him, this is my homeboy, Jesus. And Jesus is like, see, told you, dad told you. And then the next minute, he's like, great. So let's avoid dying. And Jesus goes, no. The, the content of Jesus as the Christ is he is going to have a showdown with the principalities and powers that oppress people physically, spiritually, socially, and culturally. And that happens in Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, in the synoptic gospels, the debate isn't, is Jesus Lord? It is, what does it mean for him to be so? Mm -hmm. And the disciples resist him being faithful as God had called him. And uh, we, uh, it, so I feel like, um, like when we get that, then the question for us as Christians is, are we going to sit? with um jesus are we going to have communities of practice are we going to listen to the experience of those who are jesus brethren right like the underside of history long enough to know what it means to to walk towards jerusalem mm. like what are the are the social political cultural economic systems that oppress people mm. and um and, and if you do that then don't expect uh, celebration all the time. But there's a certain joy when you know that you aren't going to be embarrassed about how you spent your life. And, yeah. uh, you know, 
for for like eight years, I led a series of, I mean, you could call them confirmation groups for adults, but I, I didn't because you you can guess the turnout. Um, <laughs> but if you called it, <laughs> but they they, I mean, that's essentially what it was. But we, I would run and we would do experiments in truth. And the whole idea is these are for people that had some connection with our church. It was a progressive church in Los Angeles. So um, for most of them, this was their first encounter with Christianity, um, apart from, you know, watching Seventh Heaven or some exorcist movie like that. Uh, And and so it's new to them. And then just like we've all been trained in our culture, the truth of a religion are the ideas you click true on. And so they are expecting in this uh, class to get uh, the Christian version, and then they can decide if they really believe it. Mm. Uh, and and so <laughs> each week I would have them bring in their big God questions, and I put that in quotes. Uh, and they would put it in a bowl, and I never ended in on time. So for six months I didn't answer any of the questions. Uh, but we would spend the time talking about them, slowly doing lectio divina through whatever the gospel of the liturgical year is, discussing it. And then what it's like to do different experiments in truth. And we would invent them based on some teaching of Jesus. Right. So like thinking of stuff we already said, one example was, you know, Jesus says, don't judge. Um, well, how would we do that together for a month? Well, what we did was we wrote a short prayer and on a text chain, if anyone texted the name of somebody, we all agreed that we would see it and quickly pray. Uh, like if I texted Peter and y'all are like, oh, junk trip, just judge Peter. Uh, right. Uh, then you, everyone would pray, God, you made and know and love Peter completely. Give trip the eyes to see him as you see him and the courage to love him as you intend him to be loved. And that's it. But if you get 10 or so of those texts today, and then you realize that you were a part of a community struggling to cultivate the eyes of grace and compassion that God has. Then it changes. And then in the third week, someone texts their own name. So trip, text, trip. And all of a sudden, y'all see text from trip, and it says trip. And everyone prays, God, you made and know and love trip completely. Give him the eyes to see himself as you see him and the courage to love him as you intend him to be loved. Now, when you get done with a month of that, and then you ask yourself, well, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? You know what questions you don't ask? Well, is, what's going to happen to Gandhi? That's just dumb. <laughs> it's, not, it's just not good. Like, it, you, and uh, it, you, you sit there and go, yes. Like, how, how, what's the chance adults just don't lie to each other for at least three-fourths of their conversations, small. But what happens if you cultivated a space of radical affirmation such that the fullness of your brokenness is welcomed and celebrated because we know that when we exercise the untruths in our lives in the presence of grace, transformation happens. And so it begins with how we judge others because we all know we do that. But it ends in how we judge ourselves. And what does that freedom look like? And then that's an experiment in truth because the whole idea for, the, for it is um, let's live as if what Jesus offered his disciples is true. And do we feel more at home in reality and confident in where we're going 
uh, at the end. And, you know, it's, uh, I, mean, I don't think it should be too surprising that that's powerful. And the crazy thing is, you can also imagine doing the same thing with most of the wisdom traditions in the world. Mm. That, and that's not a threatening thing as a Christian, right? Like you're saying, my experience encounter with God's mediated by Jesus. And this is a great gift and wisdom. And I want to celebrate it, practice it, and offer it to others. And that doesn't have to mean that uh, my neighbor has a different mug that doesn't say like best Abba in the world. <laughs> you know, like you can have it. Uh, it no one, it, this is the thing about that strikes me about it is, you know, as a, um, if I sat and told you how uh, Alicia and I fell in love and how we, what we've learned over our entire time since we were 18, we've been together. Uh, I don't expect you to ask me for a number to call her up. I think for you to go, that sounds like a deep love and they've loved each other and grown. And it's compelling and it animates trip. And I imagine it does for her. And that's beautiful. And what does it do? It reminds you of those relationships you have that are deeply loving and, and challenging and space for growth. And I, and I think as Christians, that way of Jesus is something we can offer people uh, and, and, and offer it in this robust way of that the way of Jesus actually is a way of engaging the world in a deeply transformative and true and life-giving way without deflating or dismissing other people's encounters because the real predicament I think we have culturally is that nobody's picking up the wisdom from any of our wisdom tradition. We're right. running around comparing ideas, hoping that they have the same type of truth in them a syllogism has, or you can put under a microscope and that's depressing. Right. Most of us don't have communities where we get to be fully human. And I believe the church has the tools and resources and space to do that. And I, I, and so, you know, this book, though, you know, the stories I just told are definitely not in it because it's an academic textbook. Um, the, the other Jesus book does have stories like that in it, but it's a, uh, um, it, it comes out of how do I articulate uh, it constructively with lots of nerdy footnotes, this reality that I've experienced as a minister and in community, because uh, that matters. And so often our reflection around Jesus is determined uh, by questions that if you answer them, the answer's bad. Like if you answer the wrong question, it just gets bad. What's really interesting when you touch on that there is I, I was reflecting to Sue earlier today um, on the phone that I remember being in youth group and we were sitting around in a small group one night and we were we were having this, it got quite heated, this discussion actually about, which really was a, a, a discussion of Christology, at least in the, the way it's often done fundamentally, which was uh, when was teenage Jesus God was basically the conversation. So it's one of those classic conversations that realistically doesn't matter in any front, but geez, it mattered at the time. And it was, you know, there was one person who says, no, 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 from the moment Jesus was born, you know, almost like Jesus and God got in a meeting room and had a bit of a chat and concocted this plan. And Jesus was like, all right, send me down, dad, I'm, I'm ready to go. And then there was someone else who said, no, 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 it was, it was look at the baptism, look at all those sorts of things. There was an anointing where Jesus became God. And mm -hmm. this, this became the literal, the literal answer to this question became the most important thing in the room. And the, it was so funny because we used to go to McDonald's after youth group. And I remember this night, it was the only night it ever happened that the group split in half and went to two different McDonald's <laughs> because there was such a visceral sense that the others are stupid and the others have missed the point on this particular one. So we were split yeah. at the, the different fast food That's places. really funny. <laughs> yeah. But the funny part is that the, the, 
you know, all those answers are actually in the New Testament. <laughs> like the canon, like what we canonized are different answers. You get at baptism, at conception, mm. eternal logos in Paul, depending on how you read it, at the resurrection or the answer. <laughs> yes, but it's yeah. a, like the, somehow the, the church canonized multiple answers to that question. And, uh, and a youth group can't manage more than one. It is, it, it, and I think that is really connected to that desire to like that, that our ideas are the most important thing. Yeah. Um, but when you canonize uh, gospels that come from different parts of the church and, uh, and they're there, you're hearing different communities, most cherished testimonies to the living Christ in their midst. Yeah. And that yeah. sounds different when it comes from different people. That um, lived experience is what you were describing before, because I, I often think we get it wrong. You know, everyone thinks that, well, so many people in the church have been have grown up thinking that faith means believing, you know, six impossible things before breakfast. And it's about how hard you can hang on to these things that you know that you're struggling to believe. Um, and yet faith does, there is such a thing that faith can grow, but it grows from that experience. Like that text, like your experiments in truth you were talking about. It actually grows when you go, actually in my life, this has made me more loving. It has made me have a greater sense of who I am. It's made me be at home in myself with others, more accepting of others. Wow, that's actually something that works. And this is what you're describing and what Dom's describing is the sort of you know ideas stuff that we talk around. It's because we're deeply anxious that we get the wrong you know what if for a while if the church didn't experiment of truth whereas we just said let's just chuck out getting upset over the ideas and who's right and who's wrong and let's just try this kind of lived experience thing let's try the putting on the mind of christ thing and let's see if we put that focus just on living and seeing what it changed for us as experience because i know my faith when i went through a deconstruction the way it, it it kind of has reformed has been just on actually what in my experience do I know to be true, and that's what's led me in, in a path that feels to me like faith. And it also means we um, have to ask the question: so what what am I being asked to do? You know, the, the 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 main problem I've had with the whole sort of package deal idea is you know when jesus says it's finished and it's over and then we have this idea that well it's all done whatever the whatever the whatever needed to be sorted has been sorted it disempowers us from doing the very thing that jesus did and so huge slabs of the church won't engage the powers and the principalities because they argue that jesus has already done it and yet mm -hmm. the powers and principalities are out there saying yeah Good on you guys. Keep on believing that because we're actually getting on with doing our stuff, which is actually making, yeah. destroying people's lives, ruining the planet, and we're going, oh, well, Jesus has sorted that, so we don't have to do anything, whereas process theology and encounter means that we, you know, if we're following the way of Jesus, we too have to be the ones who who confront the powers and the principalities, knowing that it could get us crucified, mm -hmm. knowing, knowing that that's what we could be setting ourselves up for and that in the process of being crucified, there'll be resurrection. Mm -hmm. So you walk, in, you walk into uh, situations that could, could destroy you in order to, to confront the powers and the principalities. Mm. And that is scary but it's also compelling 
but it's also engaged. It means that you've, you know, faith communities then have to ask the question, so where, where, what are the powers and principalities up, into, up, up to in our neighbourhood and what are we going to do about it? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, it, it, it comes back to, it's a whole different way of looking at these big theological questions then instead of thinking, oh, you know, was Jesus divine before birth or when he was a human? Instead of, no, this is really what, what comes out through the book trip is a different way of framing that whole question which is instead of looking at, at um, the nature of Christ as as something objective that happened at one particular point in the timeline that you can circle around, you work from a totally different angle, which is the how did the disciples confess Jesus as Christ and, and how is that then confessed in every community that you will find right now and, and every day and, and next week and next year and, and not not something that happened once on the timeline that we can circle with a red pen and then have discussions mm-hmm. about it two different McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, uh, you know, there's a story in the synoptics where it's either a Canaanite woman or a Syrophoenician woman who challenges Jesus ethnocentric horizon of his ministry, right? Yeah. Like uh, she is asking for attention to go to her son um and jesus says basically you're not jewish uh that's not on my my on my mission and she says even dogs get uh um crumbs from the table right and in that moment jesus says you know you have great faith right and and you see from that moment in the story that the horizon of jesus ministry expands to include the gentiles now you know depending on your uh, the way in which you understand Jesus's divinity, right? Like it's either embarrassing that Jesus got corrected by a woman or he's actually showing you uh, what it's like to, mm. to live as a fully human person responding fully to the divine. That when you're encountered across difference and challenged as to whether the boundaries you put the presence and love of God are really true, that you show up and cross them, right? So is that sh- is it embarrassing that Jesus had to catch up to being the Christ? Or is it a model for what we're to do as Christians and as the church? Um, and, and I think if you go on and look at Acts, the church regularly has to catch up with the mind and spirit of Christ. Peter's sitting there debating about whether or not you get to eat with Gentiles, and he's actually correct about the Bible, Right. He's quoting the actual Bible, and he's accurate. It should not happen. And then he says, but look what's going on in them. Mm. Like the very same thing that happened to us, where the Spirit of God descends and embodies and fills them up. That's happening with them. And so what do we need to do? We need to catch up to being the church. Mm. And I think that too often, if we make Jesus's divinity something that is this thing that makes him so different from us, then we start to miss how that his own presence in the story in the Syrophoenician woman, for example, and then how the body of Christ in the early church are constantly being given this invitation to catch up with being the church or to catch up with being the Christ. Um, and, and then, and then we get and decide to have fights about it, right? Like, uh, and it's depressing. Um, but. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, we're, we're moving towards wrapping up here. That feels like not the tone we should end the podcast on, just the depressing <laughs> infighting that goes on. But, but it's you see, that, that particular story you've told, I remember I've heard, I think, three different messages in my church-going life that all made some kind of a point about how God tests us and that that was Jesus testing somebody. And that's the thing is if you make, mm. if you remove Jesus' humanity and just te- use that as a, he was completely divine in every single moment and God is a fixed thing, then God as this fixed thing decides on occasion to test people. And if you're good enough, you might change its mind. That's, that's one way of dealing with that. Text, I guess. <laughs> I, I, my favorite story, actually, I, it's, I think it's, the best story in the New Testament because it deconstructs that ridiculous idea of Jesus being sort of mm-hmm. uh, 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 holier than thou, float above the ground, um, no need to go to the toilet sort of guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, the, uh, in, the, in my first Jesus book that is full of more inappropriate jokes, uh in the beginning of the book i joke about uh my roommate and i in college we would settle uh big debates by playing video games and whoever won was whoever the spirit wanted to win and and one of our debates was was, uh was whether or not like adolescent jesus had wet dreams right like like and we're like, is he fully human? And I remember we had this on argument and then Mike, my roommate's like, all right, we got to cast lots. Let's play football. And, uh, and, uh, turns out he did. Turns out he did. Um, <laughs> well, so, it sounds like the spirit was working properly working. with the game that day. <laughs> well, that's not yeah. a bad idea. If you tell that story, it gets the youth group's attention. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, Peter, we could potentially set you up in a video game with maybe some of the Christian lobby or something along those lines. <laughs> That's what we can set up a game of FIFA. That might not, that might not be the best tool in, in, in my arsenal, I don't think. Yeah, perhaps not. Perhaps not. Well, thank you very much, Trip. You can uh, find Trip all over the internet, really, and at Homebrewed Christianity as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure having the conversation, Trip. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It's been wonderful. And we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.